from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. As always, be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter to get the latest show direct into your inbox every Tuesday, as well as announcements for upcoming live streams. On today's show, I have two talented writers that have co-written an amazing gothic horror novel without ever having met each other in person due to being separated by the Atlantic Ocean. They're joining me today to talk about their recent novel, Delavan House, as well as their upcoming works in the trilogy. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Ruth Ann Jaggy and Natasha Sinclair. Dan, Natasha, ladies of Delavan House, welcome to the show. Hi, Vince. Nice to see you again. Hi, Vince. Nice to meet you. Good to see you again, Ruthann. Very nice to meet you, Natasha. Thank you for joining me on this 12th day of May 2023. I was aware of Ruthann's writing ability, so I couldn't wait to see what the combined talent of the both of you would be. And if I had to make an analogy, I would say gasoline combined with fire (laughs) the violence was exquisite the sex scenes were incendiary the story was rife with mythology spirituality and ancient evil so i'm going to do my best to not incur the wrath of the ladies of delavan house so the story centers around the village of bad and its connection to an ominous structure surrounded by an iron fence called Delavan House. The story has a rich mythology, which I'm assuming is based on Celtic traditions. So, Natasha, could you tell us a little bit about any influence you drew from mythology for the story? Um, We actually, both of us drew lots of influence from mythology, not just specifically Celtic mythology, because... Celtic mythology, there is a lot of literature about Celtic mythology out there and about Celtic art, but a lot has been lost too. So we really drew more on folk tales and legends 
and really created our own story around some of those. So some of the folk tales we drew on were specifically to do with fae culture, which is quite heavy, and oral tradition and oral storytelling in Scotland and Ireland and Wales. And a lot of those stories and legends have actually been lost over the years because our traditions was always oral storytelling. We'd sit around together, pass stories from person to person, and many of them actually were not written down in text form. So we find little extracts and songs and dances and pieces of art. So yeah, we drew on some of that folklore, specifically with our Lady Lenore Delavan of the house, who is Bavansi, who is a vampiric fae creature from the Scottish Highlands. So she was probably one of the main creatures that our story revolved around. You mentioned the title of Our Village of Bad. Every single name and place and structure, a lot of thought went into it. And it was all very highly edited in what we put into Delavan House Book One. So yes, there's lots of little crumbs, lots of little Easter eggs. And the Village of Bad is one of those because we also speak about two other places in our book. We visit Maka, the Isle of Maka, and the village of Anand. And the three of them together form the Morrigan, which you may be familiar with in mythology. Okay. You sound like a bit of a scholar. What is your background? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) What is your background with this? She's so brilliant. Uh She's so brilliant. I'm just obsessive. Oh, okay. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. the next best thing. <laughs> when I'm interested in something, I get quite obsessive about consuming and reading about it. And uh, yeah, like Scottish history and mythology, I'm always exploring places and every bit of text I can get my hands on. So, yeah. <laughs> mm, gotcha. We did a lot of historical research as well, and we, we kept going down rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. Um, it took us a year and a half to write this book. Because everything in the story, all of the characters, the story itself, the structures, those are totally original. So when we did our research, we'd come up with, like Natasha said, little crumbs, and then we'd start embellishing on them. And that's where the story started to take shape. Originally, I just approached her and said, hey, I want to do this haunted house story about a house that's really not a house at all. (laughs) And she goes, "Okay, well, that sounds cool. But let's have it be in Scotland. And oh, let's use Scottish mythology, says the girl who lives in Texas and knows nothing about it. <laughs> so honestly, it was an evolving process right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, one of us would find one little thing and then we'd scramble to contact the other and go, you've got to read this. And she'd find something. I would get pages in my inbox that I had to read. Well, within Delavan House is a powerful woman named Lady Lenore Delavan, who was the wife of an aristocrat. The house is surrounded by an iron fence that keeps Lenore confined. Only a family of blacksmiths will approach the house to maintain the iron fence. So was the reason the iron fence was able to hold her captive because it was the material used to make the shackles that held accused witches in bondage? And if not, what was it? 
Well, Lady Lenore Bellavan is actually of fey blood, and the fey are highly allergic to iron. So it's actually nothing to do with witches at all. Um, certainly in Scotland, as far as the real witch trials, iron wasn't a particularly strong feature used against them. We do have a witch's collar. It was hung outside a kirk in Fife. It's now in the Museum of Scotland, the National Museum of Scotland. And that was used just to shackle accused witches to the outside just to humiliate them and show them to the world that they they have been accused. But it wasn't anything to do with the material of iron. Okay. We also went with the iron because our village, when we were researching the area that we wanted to design Delavan House around, it was once an epicenter of mining. That was their economy at one point. Scotland was known for its cold iron, as it was called. Mm. So that all kind of faded away when things went in other directions and China and the East took over the iron trade and that kind of thing. So we needed to give our village a source of income and a connection to the supernatural characters we were creating. So we made it a predominantly blacksmith founded village as it were okay gotcha so it was a point in history as well yeah yeah well lady lenore delavan was a bit of a paradox she was a powerful being that was the result of rejection sadism and abject sadness and depression the birth of her child and this is going to be another thing i i looked this up so maybe i got the pronunciation (laughs) wrong i swear to god i will send you the videos they pronounced C, however it's spelled, C-A-O, whatever. They pronounced it Quiva. Is that even close? It's very close. It's very close. Okay. It's awesome. All right. <laughs> Listeners at home, I'm treading carefully here. All right. So the birth of her child, Quiva, was a momentous event. But other than the mention of Imbolc, which I think is a sort of celebration or holiday it doesn't really say who her father was. You mentioned multiple Easter eggs. Is it something that's supposed to remain a mystery or is there an Easter egg that I'm missing? There is crumbs within the book that point towards the father, but we are not ready to reveal that yet. So this is the first of our trilogy. Oh, okay, okay. And that will come. All right, the trilogy. But we know who the father is. Yes. <laughs> You won't tell me off air? You may have to reread it. You might be able to work it out. I'm not sure. You think so? I think you might. All right. I'll check it out. We're getting ready to start on book two, The Delavan Diaries, and that will release in November. In November. So book one is setting the stage, and book two is going to be mayhem. <laughs> awesome. I really like the element of the Delavan flock, the flock of black crows that act as the eyes and ears of Lady Lenore Delavan. The concept of a witch or magician's familiar is very compelling, my favorite of which are Odin's ravens. The Delavan flock was an extension of Lenore's eyes into the village. What is so compelling about the link between human and animal? I'm waiting to see if Natasha answers. She's the crow collector oh, yeah. and the chicken lady. She keeps chickens. Well, there's like, you know, there's like this space between animal to human. 
it's like you can still sense that connection, that connection through evolution. That's kind of what comes to my mind, but I don't know if that's what well, it is or the not. In the intelligence of crows fascinated both of us. And we both live in areas where we're fortunate enough to actually have quite a few of them. And we've watched them and we've observed them. And the way they act within, I would say, their culture or their neighborhoods or with other birds. And to your question, what is that connection between animals and humans that's so compelling when you begin to observe animals like that, that are pack animals, herd animals, crows, anything like that, you start to see that we're not that dissimilar and that we do have certain characteristics that could be interpreted as human, as it were. And they do say that crows are probably one of the most intelligent creatures that we're familiar with. There are a lot of other ones but it's pretty well known throughout history. And they're frequently touched on in literature and a lot of different pieces of art and that type of thing where creative people do have a connection where they almost understand each other to a certain extent. So when we were looking for something to be the eyes and ears of this supernatural creature, we both hit it at the same time, like the crows. Mm. Oh my gosh, we've got this massive gothic structure. We've got this dark element living within it. How is she going to know what's going on with the village and the area that she basically looms over at all times? Well, they became her eyes and ears through that. Natasha takes it a step further. She goes to the park with crackers in her pocket to feed the crows. <laughs> I do. I don't take my children to the park for them to play. It's for me to feed the crows. <laughs> nice. Uh, but certainly exactly what Ruthann said, when we, when we infused the crows into the story, it was something that we almost didn't really discuss with each other. It just sort of happened too. Uh, Ruthann would send me video footage of crows and New York and a New York cemetery and she's got crazy love for these birds so she'd send me videos and sound bites of these crows and they just kind of invited themselves into our story and they became such a, a main feature as I said with the title names of our fictional places bad actually means warrior crow so she's representative of the warrior aspect of the goddess. Lady Delavan, in her supernatural form, the Bavan Sea can actually shapeshift into a hooded crow. So it's all very interlinked. So they're not just her eyes and ears, they are part of her. Mm. Yeah, I was just sitting here thinking about, you know how... In a movie, there'll be some spiritual being or something like that that'll walk out with their hands spread and doves will fly out behind them. I'm thinking about Natasha with her black hair, or with her <laughs> with her nails painted black, crows just flying out behind her. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> that needs to be there. <laughs> the next video on your Instagram, TikTok, whatever, needs to be you. Let's see. 
There needs to be black curtains, and you need to part them, walk out with your hands spread, and just close. Oh, that is the dream. That is the dream. I'll tell you. I was trying to befriend a crow last year, and I ended up with a pigeon in my living room. Not a crow. It was a pigeon. It was a pigeon? It was a pigeon. I was trying to make friends with the crows and brought a pigeon home. Well, that people—that's uh, a real common thing for people to keep, right? Pigeons. Yeah, they are quite common because people yeah. raise them and breed them and things like that. But no, this was just a little lost pigeon that I had to save from a dog eating it, so it came home with me. Oh, <laughs> was it carrying messages for you now? <laughs> so there is a mischievous gypsy girl in the story named Pavona. Or Voni mm -hmm. for short. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm -hmm. All mm -hmm. right. Her family was run <laughs> off by the villagers, but she was left behind by her family to fend for herself because she would be one less mouth to feed. So I'm curious to know which of you developed that character and if you share any traits with her personality that you wanted to Ooh. vicariously engage with. Ooh. These questions. Oh, they're, <laughs> they're going right to our heart. Do you see the effect <laughs> these questions are having? Um, Crows are flying. Pavona actually came to me in a dream. Oh. Um, like so many of our characters do. Some of your best ideas come when you're not quite in conscious or consciousness. You know what I'm saying? Mm. You're just waking up a little bit. Pavona came to me. As far as traits, I think that her need to be accepted and the fact that she was somewhat ostracized by both of the communities that she was eventually a part of. Now, she was left behind with her family, not only for one less mouth to feed, but what they would frequently do, the nomad groups that would go through these small towns, we'll refer to them as travelers, they would leave a young one behind and then someone would go back at a later date and claim they were taken and demand a ransom. Oh. So when we left Pavona behind, Pavona truly believed she was going to be rescued and a ransom would be paid. Mm. That never happened. We really didn't get into why it didn't happen. There could have been bad weather. There could have been a turn of events. But Pavona was left in our village of Bod with basically no resources, no place to go, and nothing to do. So I think because she was initially my character by design, I think when you and I talked about this the last time we spoke, Vince, how it was very difficult for me to assimilate coming from New York, being a city girl, moving to a cattle ranch in Texas, not feeling like I ever would fit in or could fit in, and then diverting to other ways to cope in that respect very much. Pavona was the one who didn't fit in, but she was pretty resourceful and she figured out how to survive, as it were, in spite of the oppression that was put on her and the judgment that the villagers put on her because she was an outsider. Mm. Okay. So the propensity to run around naked. That could, that, could be any, that, could, that could be any female on a good day. You know, sometimes we just got to do what we got to do. Does your, <laughs> is your husband very often the character of, what was it, Arlen Morvan that <laughs> has to chase you down and cover you Arlen, up? What are you doing, all, all for the, the love of God? No, he's all the time. He is so conservative. 
I mean, I'll run around the house or do something silly. He'll go, really? Can I afford clothes? Or, <laughs> you know, can't we do better than that? Um, I wouldn't say microflex on Arlen, but he does tend to try to keep his thumb on the modesty factor at times uh-huh. and fails miserably. <laughs> well, within the backstory of Bod and Delvin House is the intersection between three characters, Grant Sutherland, Jenna McRae, and Quiba Delavan. The story begins with a love affair between Grant and Quiba that ends after Quiba experiences a very bizarre orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> so why out of all of the times of her and Grant making love, did she experience something so bizarre and terrifying? And what exactly was happening? All you, Natasha. All me. <laughs> <laughs> we are waiting with bated breath. You're waiting, you're waiting. Um, so that particular scene with Grant and Kiva, um, Kiva had very much concealed a significant part of herself from Grant. And her pleasure was so intense, she was unable to keep herself fully concealed. So she began to shift in that moment when she let go. So this is why they parted rather intense and bloody. (laughs) And she, she disappeared in the night, as it were, not to be seen. Because she was going through a season of change herself. She had lived in Delavan House for all those years, 300 years Mm. in Delavan House. But essentially, she was still just a young girl finding herself. And that was almost a moment of adolescence change, that intensity that happened mm. when she was having sex with her poor Grant, <laughs> lying there, not a clue what's going on as she, her body's eviscerating itself. Kiva, you'll know now, is a, a character who can shift form. So that was the first time she'd ever done it in that intensity with another human. And sex was a catalyst. And the emotion she was feeling for that particular character added to that. Fuel to the fire. Fuel to the fire. Well, Jenna McRae comes into the picture after going on the lamb after stealing a strange necklace from a dangerous man named Leighton Walker, who used her both sexually and occupationally. Leighton Walker was a very mysterious character. How did he come to be in possession of the mysterious necklace? And does he have any connection to Delavan House that you can tell us about that won't spoil anything? (laughs) Well, all I can say, Vince, is we're not done with Leighton yet. Okay. We've been talking about that off and on for, oh, I don't know, a few weeks now. We feel Leighton has some dues to pay, and you've read the book, so you know what happens. Leighton is basically a thug. He's a criminal, a really good-looking criminal in an expensive suit with a good watch. But one of the ways that Leighton makes his income is by... I guess she would say coercion. When people owe him money, he goes after people. And sometimes he acquires property as well as dues or monies that are owed to him. So when people can't pay, Leighton is fond of taking things. 
not unlike the U.S. government when they go in and there's a drug bust and they take your cars and they take your jewelry <laughs> and they take your they take everything. Well, Leighton does that, but it's on a much more singular criminal basis. So Leighton became in possession of the necklace through one of his criminal activities. Mm. Yeah, he seemed. Uh, was he modeled after anybody in particular? Because he. <laughs> He, uh, you are cutting us right to the core. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying he does. He's not like absolutely, uh, absolutely. I was going to say he yes. he is yes. he is a thug, yes. but he's like got this strange. It's almost as if he can care, but then you find out really he's just kind of stone cold, like almost a sociopath. But it's absolutely. It's, he's you know what it is. He's kind of like Anton Chigurh. He's a psychopath. <laughs> But he has a code that he follows. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You've you've nailed it to the nth degree. Okay. It's exactly as Natasha and I discussed when we were designing his character. He does have a code. He grew up on the streets. Mm. He ran the neighborhood. He came from nothing. And he still got that boy gang of his, as it were, that does his dirty work because he commanded loyalty. Mm. There's very much a code involved in the process. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Anybody in particular? Yes. But you won't tell me? <laughs> Not, ah, yet. Not okay. yet. Not yet. Not okay. yet. When we, when, we when we get into book two okay. and we decide how we're going to evolve mm. Leighton's character, we can share that a little bit more about him. Okay. But yes, he's very definitely based on a personal acquaintance. Gotcha. All right. Well, Jenna enters the village of Bod seemingly by mistake, looking for a B&B that she booked that apparently didn't exist. And initially she gives the cabbie an address that turns out not to be correct or incomplete. So she calls somebody and is given the correct information. But when they get there, Nobody knows what she's talking about. So who was the mystery landlady that she spoke to that led her astray? Me. <laughs> it was me. She spoke to me. Oh, it was you. She spoke to me. You, you were such a troublemaker. I know. My God. I know. She didn't understand my accent. I think she took the postcode down wrong. <laughs> um, so, yes. To be honest, that area, we didn't focus too much about that because our postcodes here, you're given a postcode and you can drive around in circles and never find where you think you're looking for. Um, uh-huh. These things happen, Vince. They just happen. Come over. You'll find out. It happens uh-huh. in central Scotland. Never mind up in the northern east coast. Mm. <laughs> So, yes, it does happen with postcode mix-ups here quite a lot. Okay. So it is, there's nothing, like, sinister or uh, manipulative behind it? Not at the moment. Oh, okay. Subject to change. (laughs) Is that something you guys do, like, when you're writing, like, you can leave something that could be just a mistake or could be a a just-so thing that you always have the option of changing later? Just, you know, certain things, not everything. Not really. We're pretty definitive. We're pretty definitive. Yeah, yeah. We just knew that a few of the characters, we didn't want to continue their story arc in book one Mm -hmm. because right from the initial 
beginning of everything we started talking about, we knew this was going to be a trilogy. We knew that this would take three books to bring it to where we wanted to bring it. But there's definitely a beginning and end to most of the most of the things that we yeah. do. Because okay. most of the minor characters all have stories too, which Ruth Ann and I both have penned significant backstory on each of our characters, but we have it stored in our shared documents. <laughs> and we're like, right, uh-huh. we're going to take that here. We'll use that there. This won't play in until we're doing this part of the story. So we'll just keep that aside. So we have lots <laughs> waiting in the wings <laughs> for the right moment because everything has its moment. We actually have eight pages printed front and back of characters, their descriptions, yeah. their ages, what oh. they look like. Because working the way that we did and do so far apart, we needed references. I would say, how old is she again? And what color is your hair again? Mm. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. So Natasha came up with the great idea of actually designing a script for each of our characters that we can refer to as we go into book two and book three of the trilogy. There are going to be some new characters added in because some of them do get eliminated in book one. So we'll be adding some characters as we go. But we really had to define them because the story is a complex story. Mm -hmm. And even between the two of us, we were getting lost with some of our characters at the beginning. So you guys have like a shared doc that you can kind of do edits to? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. All right. Several. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, at first I would write a character. Natasha would write a character. The queen of tech would plug it all into our master <laughs> document. And then we'd go back and we'd look for story gaps and we'd try to close those gaps. By the end, we were both in the same document finishing each other's sentences. Mm. And that's one of the best compliments that we've gotten our reviews from people is that they can't tell where one of our voices starts and the other one picks up. And if we could have achieved anything as collaborative authors, that's like the highest compliment is you can't really tell who wrote which character and what part of the story. We also did that with each other when we were going through the final stages of the manuscript. We were pulling extracts just to help with marketing and promoting the book. And one of us would message the other going, this is a fantastic quote. Did you write that? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I wrote it. Did you write it? We didn't know. Like, who wrote this quote? It's brilliant. I'm like, I don't know. Did you? I can't remember. (laughs) Can I be the brilliant one? What's what's the deal? (laughs) Well, we take turns. We we pass the torch. It's my turn to take credit for the brilliant thing. Yeah, Yeah, the crown goes back and forth. (laughs) Well, once Jenna is able to find a room for the night, and this kind of harkens back to the episode with Ruth Ann that we did previously, Once Jenna is able to find a room for the night and take a bath, she's seduced by a man in the bar and a graphic sex scene unfolds. And in this previous episode, I was told that Natasha is the one that writes, and I quote, the ooey gooey sex scenes. (laughs) So, So for future aspiring romance novelists or writers of any kind, what kind of skill set is needed to write ooey gooey sex scenes? Was there a sex scene in our book? 
<laughs> well, I imagine your book probably contributed to a lot of cold showers. <laughs> I might have had one or two as well. <laughs> um, I think it really comes down to not shying away from sex because it's just something that most of us do. Most of us think about a lot of the time. <laughs> Whether it's ourselves or other people doing it or who's doing who. So I think when you're writing it, you just have to get rid of any awkwardness and just have a relationship with the characters on the page. Get intimate with them. Get into bed with them. Be that dirty voyeur in the corner, watching the ins and outs of everything, listening to all the oohs and ahs and just soak up and write it. And I think anyone that's uncomfortable with writing those sex scenes, write it as though no one else is going to read it or see it. Write something that turns you on or that you think will turn on someone that you want to turn on. And then once you're done with it, read it all back and decide what you're comfortable putting out there into the world with your name. (laughs) Use a pseudonym if you want to, but but no, I, I think sex scenes are supposed to be provocative they're supposed to stir something in us the same as our brutal scenes just like the horrific scenes they're supposed to stir something in us so if you're not writing it and it's not stirring something in yourself then you have to do it again and again and again and I think Jenna and Grant did it again and again and again too (laughs) (laughs) indeed And there's a very close correlation emotionally. You're looking, you're talking, you just mentioned, Vince, about horror, sex, humor. Mm -hmm. All those things are what drive us as humans. Mm -hmm. They evoke those emotions. So we had a lot of conversations about how much was too much, where we're going to do this, how violent did we want to go, because we do blend genres in the book. It's Mm -hmm. not strictly a horror novel. It's a dark fantasy. It's gothic. Mm -hmm. It's dark romance. We went into a lot of different areas. My problem is when I write them, I laugh hysterically. (laughs) Even reading hers, Uh I'm sitting there laughing hysterically. (laughs) Whereas she takes it as a mission. (laughs) And other people have said this. It's so well done when she writes them, but she's like, uh-uh, I'm going for it. When I'm sitting there and laughing my butt off, mm. oh, no, I can't say that. Oh, people are going to think I'm an idiot. <laughs> she basically just goes ahead and does it. <laughs> so I have mad respect. And when we came to those parts, I'm like, I'm not even going to try to write this. This is on you. Go ahead, write it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in your previous novella, The New Girl's Patient, we talked about the graphic depictions of violence. I'm like, right. how? Right. So, like, in this book, is it kind of like Natasha is the sex and Ruth Ann is the violence? <laughs> I would say that's a really adequate description yeah. because Natasha nailed it. You're in bed with these characters. You live, eat, and breathe them. They do not leave you alone. Mm-hmm. They don't leave you alone when you're watching something on TV. They don't leave you alone when you're sleeping. I think what it is is that when you create a violence either to a character or in a scene, you as an author truly believe 
it's deserved. Mm. So if somebody's doing something or someone's a victim of something, it's an integral part of what that character needs to go forward in the story. I have no trouble creating the violence because a lot of the times I'm kind of pissed off at whoever I'm creating the violence about <laughs> anyway. I mean, you know, your hands are like wet on the keyboard type thing. Like, uh, oh yeah, they've had it this time. Uh, Whereas Natasha, she's like, la-di-da, I'm going to go feed the crows. And oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm going to write this killer sex scene <laughs> while I'm sitting there on the park bench. <laughs> <laughs> very emotional in all the cases yeah right well minerva morvin is a key character in the book because of her status in a sewing circle and instead of just standard idle gossip they're talking about sacred rights that keep the village in existence and gossip plays a big role in a small town. And Ruth Ann, you've told me about the idle chatter in the rural area that you live in, but I don't know about the area that you live in, Natasha. So could you tell me a little bit about where you live as far as whether it's rural, suburban, and could you both tell me how your surroundings inform the narrative of the story? Well, currently I live in a semi-rural village so where I live, I'm with a population of about two, two and a half thousand people. So it's quite a big village. And it's halfway kind of between Edinburgh and Glasgow. So although we are in the countryside, you're not far from getting to the cities. I keep myself to myself, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But these small places, yes, people gossip all the time. I grew up in a suburban area population was a bit larger but it was full of hen wives everybody knew everybody's information and uh, everything got passed about like whispers and it would change from person to person to person mm. and that gossip would be someone's making or someone's death so yeah I suppose it's always been a bit of an influence in the communities that I've lived in and just like Rosanne as well where she is in Texas it's a very small intimate community although you're spread far mm -hmm. apart and how about i guess the back end of that question could you tell me how your surroundings inform the narrative of the story well the isolation factor for both of us and the fact that we pretty much do keep to ourselves even though we both have access to a major city mm -hmm. glasgow and natasha's case and san antonio in my case we don't travel in those circles. We're busy. We're writing all the time. We're creating all the time. Well, towards the climax of the story, we're introduced to a character called the, and this is another one, am I pronouncing it right? The <gasps> Threnody? Perfect. Perfect. Okay. The Threnody, of which I looked up the definition and found that it means a song of lamentation for the dead. Her part in the ritual was to choose suitable sacrifices and sing what I assume was a lamentation for the dead. So was she under the control of the villagers or was she part of the force that they were trying to keep in check? And can you expand on her character as much as you can, <laughs> keeping in mind the, uh, the trilogy aspect of the story? I'll defer to Natasha first on this one. Me first. Uh, she is not under the control of the villagers in any way, shape or form. The Threnody... Oh, 
Ruthann was haunted by this serenity. She was another character that came to Ruthann. It wasn't in a dream, actually. It was a, a word that the word just came at you from somewhere, didn't it? was it? on my word of the day calendar. Yeah. It was, it on, was. My word, on my desk. I have a word of the day calendar. And this character fully designed herself around Ruthann's word of the day calendar. <laughs> and I'm going to let Ruthann take it from there. <laughs> Well, it's kind of how a creative process works when you're writing. Anything can inspire. Anything can trigger. She's not under the control of the villagers. She's our edge walker, Vince. She walks between the two realms. She walks between the living and the dead or the living and the non-living. Because as you know, we bring in soups we bring in supernatural characters that are very heavily connected to celtic mythology once again at that point but she only appears at certain times and she's very fragile so when we came up with the character of this edge walker you only really see her in the story when she has a job to do be it select the sacrifices, be it let herself be seen. She's also connected to the flock that you brought up earlier, Vince. The flock listens to her. They give her the messages. It's all kind of a circular world that we've created. But you only see the Threnody in the book when she has a pivotal role to play. She's one of my favorite characters because she is so elusive and she is so important and she's very damaged at one point. And I don't like to give too much away, but you mentioned Minerva and her women. And then the part she plays, Threnody's job is to select the sacrifices because the only way our village can continue to thrive under the domination of this force in Delavan House. Delavan House is the pivotal ingredient to the whole story. Everything comes from our epicenter of Delavan House. But Threnody is unique because she can call down the heavens. She can call down forces that are more powerful than Lady Delavan herself. So this tiny little almost transparent mythical creature that we haven't really defined because people have asked us, well, is she a fairy? Is she say? Is she a ghost? She's neither. She's an edge walker. She's not living. She's not dead. She can communicate with both worlds, as it were. There were definite aspects of the folklore behind changelings yeah. that fed into the development mm -hmm. of the Threnody. So, I think when you ask if she's connected to the village or the house, her strongest connection is actually to Elfame, which mm. is the fairy realm, specifically the Unseelie court. Obviously, you have met Nick Nevin, and she has a special relationship with the Threnody. Again, this is the first book in the trilogy, so it was a big introductory, and there's more on that still to come. <laughs> Yet another word I was wondering the pronunciation of Nick Nevin. 
Nick Nevin. Yeah. You're good, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not one of the ones I looked up. That's why I wanted, I heard it. I was like, oh, is that the one she's talking about? Okay. <laughs> well, so here's the next one. So every seven years on, and if I was to just pronounce it, I would say Sam Hain or something like that. But is it Soen? Yes, uh, Soen okay. or Soween. Yeah. Soween. Okay. So every seven years on Soween, there's the ritual, which we're talking about, that keeps the village and its occupants in existence. And in real life, Soween is a Gaelic festival, from what I understand, that's on November 1st, but it technically begins on the eve of October 31st, since the Celtic day ends at sunset. Is that correct? Yeah, it's okay. between the 31st and the 1st. And there's a lot of bloody lines over Samhain because obviously the Christianization of the pagan Sabbaths came along and now the Catholics celebrate All Souls Day on the 1st of November and we've got lots of holidays that fall around about that time linked to many different religions and spiritual traditions but ultimately they're all looking at the same thing and that's the thinning of the veil between the land of the living and the dead or the thinning of the veil between the mortal world and the fee world. So, yes. It would be Halloween in the U.S., as, as we call it, Halloween. Yeah. Um, the Catholics call it All Saints Day. The beginning of all of those beliefs go back to the pagan practices, as it were, and Samhain on that day. Well, I read a bunch of articles about witches being very active on the blue moon, which I think you were just saying that Soween is synonymous with the veil between the two worlds being at its thinnest. But is that made exponentially more intense by the presence of a blue moon, which from what I understand, a blue moon falls on Soween every 18 to 19 years? Yeah, that's right. So the blue moon is actually quite common, not common on Soween. Mm -hmm. So the blue moon is when you have two full moon cycles within one calendar month. Okay. And obviously you have October when it happens, it's every 18 to 19 years or so. Some people do celebrate it, that use it to harness uh, energy. They feel energy is a lot stronger under a blue moon. And we certainly channeled into that when we were designing the ritual of our village because when our lady Lenore Delavan was confined to the house that happened at a particularly intense time a blue moon and none of the rituals had fallen on a blue moon until the one that happens in Delavan house in 2020. So the blue moon on Soween happens when lady Lenore Delavan gets tied to Delavan house and trapped there and it doesn't happen again while coinciding with the ritual that happens every seven years until 2020 at the end of her book when she, again, I don't want to give it away, but it's so difficult not oh, yeah, to, no. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there is a, an extra intensity. Gotcha. Well, without getting into either one of your spiritual leanings, I mean, I want to do that, but not particularly with this question. I'm just curious, have either of you ever participated in any kind of celebration or gathering on a blue moon on Soween? No, I haven't no. on a blue moon. No. Okay. No, just 
traditional Halloween, just the usual stuff we do. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I think we need to do that, Natasha. I think we need to pencil it in and do uh, something crazy. <laughs> you have the wide open land to do it, right? That's, that's right. Anything can happen. <laughs> there could be there could be all kinds of bonfires. I mean, I mean, I'm not above a sacrifice if it serves my purpose. <laughs> Well, the next blue moon is quite a few years away. On so are you guys? Are, are you guys really away. good writers? Or are you like making deals with spirits and sacrificing? Oh no, we're not going <laughs> to tell you that. This. We're not going to tell you that. And we've got an event here in Texas next year. We've got a solar eclipse in Texas, and actually, where I live is one of the the best places to view it. It's going to be a complete eclipse. It's the only time it will ever happen in our lifetime. Oh, really? So. I think all of these astrological signs and events throughout history have inspired different beliefs and they've inspired different practices and they've inspired different rituals. If you even go to the Mayans, when you go to the runes, and I forget which one, it may be Chichen Itza, there's one they do when the sun's only in a position at certain times so many years apart where you can see the shadow of the serpent down the wall on the inside of the ruin. So all of these astrological events and these nature earth events connect very strongly into so many things that we find in history and also in fiction like ours, where there's a reason for a ritual and there's a reason certain things happen at certain times. And a lot of it interesting ties into a harvest. It's interesting because Natasha and I were talking the other day. I made my husband sit through the original Wicker Man, the 1973 version of the Wicker Man, which is this is the 50th anniversary year, <laughs> and it doesn't get much better than that for me. Mm. I mean, I thrive on all of that. It's my favorite <laughs> genre, the folklore, the ritual, the cult. But if you think about it, even that back then, was demonstrating the harvest more ritually midsummer, the Ariostra film, you know, everything has to do with the rebirth, the dying off the rebirth. So for us, that was real important to bring that element in. But I'm not going to promise you that we're above rituals on a personal basis. Um, <laughs> so you just don't, you just don't know with us. I mean, anything can possibly happen. All right. I've been apprised. I will tread carefully. Continue to tread carefully. Uh, you're on our good side. Don't oh, okay. worry about it. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, a significant element of the story is the persecution of witches. And when you look up witch trials, you always find reference to Salem, the Salem witch trials being the most famous, meaning that there was obviously others. So did you draw from historical accounts of witch trials and persecution other than the Salem trials? And well, if so, can you tell us about them? I was struggling to bite my lips there, Vince. The Salem witch trials occurred slightly over one year. One year. And there was no more than 18 or 19 people actually executed in Salem in that one year period. Scotland. <laughs> I, this is this was what began. I was wondering because they yeah. always want to illuminate the Salem no. witch trials, but I'm sure well, what no. you're about to tell me is much <laughs> much worse. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> now the witch trials in Scotland, we had three main peaks. 
of witch frenzy. That began 100 years before the tiny speck in history that was the Salem <laughs> Witch Trials. And we killed, we killed, like we're all proud of all the blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was an estimated 6,000 people killed. Estimated because the records are extremely sketchy too. Mm. A lot of things were not recorded. A lot of it came down to the pitchforks and villagers taking it for themselves. There was a lot of bloodshed during that period. And much of it was actually fueled by King James VI, who was also King James I of Scotland. He had a real fear of the supernatural forces and witches. And he really started the ball rolling here. He published a book called Demonology. I think that was around about 15, the 1570s, that book. And you'll still be able to pick it up, actually. You'd be able to pick it up online. It's a very illuminating read. So he had a paranoia that witches were out to get him. And that spread across the UK and it spread across Europe and... Yeah, we didn't draw on Salem. (laughs) (laughs) To go back to that. Uh, No. Yeah, and Salem has been, I guess you'd say, fetishized. And Mm -hmm. it's been been elevated and it's been overhyped. And I will say this, and it's kind of an interesting sideline. One of the pet peeves that Natasha and I have is when people say they do research, And we see that they've got a stack of fiction of books in front of them. Mm -hmm. And they're reading what other authors or other, not even authors, other people have written about a subject and they're borrowing inspiration. She and I actually got into historical documents. We got into archives. We got into handwritten documents that you really couldn't even read very well. As you can tell, Natasha doesn't let things go. If Mm. she's interested in something, we go down all those dark alleys until she's satisfied that we've got a strong enough actual background basis and true research to create something of our own inspired by or influenced by. So I would say one of the things that sets Delavan House apart and our work together as authors apart is when we say we research, I mean, it's like a college course for us. Mm. We sit there and we study and we make notes and we break it down and we talk to people. And I think it shows in our end result, because like I said earlier, the reviews and comments that we're getting from people they're astounded that it's like nothing they've read before. We aren't borrowing from anybody else's work in Delavan House because the research about the witch trials in particular and some of the aspects that we went into, like I said, the geological aspects of Scotland, historical, how they made their living in the area at the time. I mean, Vince, we have pulled this apart like a croissant. I'll tell you what, (laughs) we've gone in there and ripped at it from every angle. Uh So I guess we educated ourselves thoroughly. And for me, it was not only fascinating, it was devastating. Correct me, Natasha, if I say the village wrong. 
there's this tiny little fishing village in Scotland, and it's very picturesque. Pickween, Pickween, Pettenween, and they executed so many women in this tiny little village just out of abject fear. Mm. And when I was reading about it in my head, I was like, this is so much uglier and so much more profound than the Salem, which was my experience up to this point. Mm. Scotland was brutal. And the torture that a lot of these women and men and children went through was truly sadistic. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was at the hands of the church. And I know we're not wanting to get into... They say, don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics, don't talk about money. (laughs) (laughs) But when you're talking about the witch trials, you can't not talk about religion. Because a lot of these people weren't witches Uh in the romanticised view of witches. A lot of them weren't pagans either. Over in the UK, it was about converting people from Catholicism to Protestants. And it all came down to that. And it was all that back and forth between the churches and the fear among the people in little rural places. But yeah, people went crazy with their bloodlust and true torture. So yeah, and it was very personal, the way they were killed too. A lot of them were strangled by hand or drowned by hand. You know, it wasn't at a distance. It was all very intimate, which is, it's horrendous. And actually the Scottish government, they apologised for the atrocities that happened all those years ago. Only in 2020, there was a public apology. Uh Uh-huh. Because the Witchcraft Act of Scotland, that also it did affect the rest of the UK as well, of course, including Wales and Ireland. So that went on from the Witchcraft Acts of Scotland came into force in, I think it was 1735. It wasn't appealed. It didn't come out of force until the 1950s. The last person arrested under the Witchcraft Act was in the 1940s. 1940s. Mm. It's crazy. Isn't that wild? Salem has nothing on Scotland. I'll tell you. It's (laughs) wild. It's wild when you start digging into it. And we're not done yet. We're not done with that part of it yet. Well, uh, Natasha, tell me, I mean, you can tell by your handle, Clan Witch. Tell me about your, if it's not too personal, your practice as far as would you consider yourself a pagan or... Uh, yes, I am. I'm solitary pagan. I've been consciously practicing since I was probably about 14 or 15 years old. Mm-hmm. When I was very young, I did look at getting involved with groups and things, but it's just not my cup of tea. I'm very solitary by nature, mm-hmm. and it just works for me that way. I, th- I feel that organized groups can feel too much like religion. And yeah. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. <laughs> so gotcha. it, it's very, very different. <laughs> so yes, I celebrate the eight Sabbaths, which is why I'm quite intimate with Soin and Imolk was the mm-hmm. pronunciation of Kiva's birthday. She was born in Imolk, which is the beginning of springtime oh, okay, in new life. <laughs> but we so, don't know who the father was. Well, well, Rizan you guys do, but do. not me. Okay. <laughs> we do. You'll have to reread it. <laughs> yeah. I figured there was something I was missing. But uh, what about you, Ruthann? Um, I'm a 
product of years of Catholic education, devout, <laughs> devout Irish Catholic. All right. um, I'm not practicing any longer. I have no problem with anybody who feels a pull or a connection to organized religion. I think, Vince, it came because there was a period of my life for 10 years when I traveled internationally extensively. And I was exposed to a lot of different belief systems. I was exposed to a lot of different religions. I've been to Africa. I've been to China. I've been to a lot of places where their belief systems are so different from ours. And they're a lot older than ours. And Mm. like Natasha, I'm spiritual, but she's my crunchy green witch. I mean, she's the one that's very connected to the land and she grows things and she has a strong connection to animals. I just try to stay away from the bad stuff, basically. Mm. I just try not to do do no harm. Uh. I'm not above staging the house or lighting a candle or doing something like that. But I defer to her for the different things. Like, am I supposed to do something? Like, is this something important? Should I be doing something? <laughs> or, and I think what it comes down to is being conscious, mm. being aware of your life. And ultimately, regardless of what you believe, there's still right and wrong. There's good and not so good. And I won't use the term evil because, of course, there's direct evil. But I think it's just trying to live your life with purpose and be conscious. But no, I don't practice anything. I just try to stay out of trouble most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ruthann, you are from the great state of Texas. And Natasha, you are from the grand land of Scotland. So how did you guys meet and how did you work out the logistics of writing the book? We've heard about your shared doc for the dossiers on the characters, but what kind of other things do you do with regard to the logistics of writing the book? Dozens and dozens of messages, emails, (laughs) Zoom meetings, conversations. I talk to Natasha more than I talk to my husband. (laughs) We joke around, we say we share a brain because in spite of our geographical difference we're so much alike in the way we approach things and the way we're very goal-oriented we're self-starters we work intensely when we've got a project that's all we can focus on it's been a process of going into two years now i can't imagine not speaking to natasha at least once a day Because like I say, the characters don't leave us alone. And now we're so interconnected. It's definitely a marriage. I did a panel in AuthorCon in Williamsburg on collaborative writing. And one of the things I brought up is it is a marriage. And you really do need to know the other person because you're spending so much time on a cerebral level with them that it has to be someone you click with. If it's someone that you don't share a core value system and a core set of beliefs with, and you can't really get intimate with, like Natasha said earlier, we get intimate with our characters, you also have to be intimate mentally with the person you're writing with. So you can finish each other's sentences when you're editing or doing something like that. And I'll let her tell you how we connected, how we first met. Well... It all started. <laughs> Once upon a time. I walked, in, <laughs> I walked into a bar 
No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. There I she was across the room. Group. I walked into a book group, and there she was, <laughs> between the sheets, <laughs> <laughs> between the pages, just waiting for me. Yes. So exactly. um, that's basically how it happened. The first time submitting a piece of short fiction to a publisher, we both submitted a piece to this little anthology called Books of Horror. Books of Horror is a Facebook group for book lovers of horror fiction. Mm. <laughs> and uh, we both submitted work there, got accepted, and we shared pages there and a few other anthologies. And then we met on a podcast. It wasn't a podcast. It was more of a YouTube video interview. And it was a get-together with some people that were in an anthology together. So we met for the first time across the sea of other faces. And then we just started chatting like out of the blue, really. We hadn't really connected until then. And it was it was an energy, I suppose, more than anything else, because we really hadn't communicated that much. We had read each other's work. So we just started chatting one day and Ruthann was like, you want to write a book together? <laughs> I've got this idea. <laughs> and from that day, we have chatted every single day. And Ruthann was, uh, she said at least one message or at least a dozen every day, even when we both had COVID and were both ill, we were still messaging each other, whether it was about our crazy creative brains or bits of our personal life. It, it just all kind of came from there and there's not been any looking back since really no but as she said it is like a marriage it's very intimate when you're writing with someone else the way that we do I've told Ruth and I was very nervous at first writing with her because I never let anyone see a piece of my work until it's really tight and I'm happy to share it but starting something with someone else you're giving them little bits of your soul when you're writing so raw, so intimate. It is like getting naked with someone for the first time and you feel completely exposed. So you do have to have a very close friendship. I think that develops along the way when you're creating something like art together. So, yeah. And we, we both feel so lucky that we have this. Out of all the people out there, this is what we get to do together. And I will say we're good at it. And it's a partnership in so many ways because we have a lot of similarities in the way we approach things and the way we live life and different things. But in a lot of ways, we're very different. She's the technical genius and I'm the idea person. So I'll say, well, I got this idea. <laughs> and she'll be like, oh, well, that sounds great. Well, let me see how we're going to make that work. And I don't know if you know, Vince, you, you might if you've been to our website. We even formed our own publishing imprint, which is Brazen Folk Horror, because we didn't trust the distribution, which is international. We didn't trust the handling of our work. Natasha is also a very respected credential editor. We didn't trust anyone else to put this out there and do with it what we wanted done. So not only do we write Dylan in-house, everything has been in-house. All of our PR, all of our website, all of our social media work. Natasha formatted the book. We've tested it out at printers. Everything we've done 
and we'll do under our imprint one or the other of us micromanages and takes care of. So in essence, we're not just a writing collaboration. We're a freaking business at this point. Nice. Uh, we're two little girls in the middle of nowhere, and we've created a book. I don't know if you read the Cemetery Dance Review that Dave Sims wrote. Um, mm -hmm. Cemetery Dance is one of the biggest, most respected publishers out there. And I won't name drop, but they publish Stephen King and a lot of other very influential authors. And we were fortunate enough to be picked up for a review by the Cemetery Dance website. I will send you a link to it. And we're kind of unique. We don't solicit reviews. We're not looking for blurbs from famous authors because Natasha and I have a plan. We've created this world, and it's going to be a three-book series. And we're not stopping with this trilogy. We're already talking about what comes after this trilogy. <laughs> because, you know, like they say, I can't quit you. There's no <laughs> way. We, could, we, could, we don't even want to entertain outside work anymore. And she and I both, not so much now after a year, but we've made it very clear that we're not doing open calls anymore. And we're not open to writing for other publishers hmm. because what we're doing is we're creating a brand because we both feel, and I'm sure she can embellish on this more, we want to leave a legacy. We want to leave stories that people want to read years from now. We don't want to just publish books and make money, as it were. Of course, that's kind of hard to do in publishing most of the time, <laughs> but that's not our goal. We're not in this to publish in volume. We're in this to put out quality work that we hope stands the test of time. Nice. Well, Natasha, tell me about your editing services. What was your evolution with the love of the written word that led you to writing and editing? Um, I am a huge fan of the written word, uh, clearly. I'm an insatiable reader of everything, academic, literary, gritty, smutty, erotica and horror, everything. Um, so I've always written and editing was just, I always see potential in things. So in my editing services, I offer proofreading, copy editing and developmental editing. Developmental editing is definitely my favourite because you can really help take a story to the next level. And yeah, I love doing that. Um, so yeah, I just, I love it all. I know some people tend to hate being a writer. Uh, you know, editors would like, I could never do that. Someone just won. Or writers hate editors. I love it all. I do love it all. Um, so how I got into business with it, I did a, so editorially, um, I did a diploma in editing and I passed it with distinction. I absolutely loved it, way more than I thought I would. And I decided I would channel my hobbies, I suppose, into a more academic way. So I'm doing an English literature and languages degree at the moment. I'm just finishing up a module on linguistics, which has been amazing because I'm a huge fan of the nuances and evolution and development of language. English is fascinating because it isn't just a single language. It's a whole collection of languages. 
there's a collection of Englishes that have been born of a collection of languages. It's, it's brilliant. I love it. Nice. So for the cover of Delavan House, once again, you've utilized Don Noble, which personally makes me happy. <laughs> Has he or any graphic designer, you know, business suffered from the advent of, quote, AI art, or as I like to refer to it as AI plagiarism? And if so, are they doing anything to combat it? It's so controversial right now, Vince. There was a big blow up on Twitter yesterday with some highly respected and noted authors because there's actually a submission call for AI-generated work, writing work. Um, no. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, and once again, <laughs> I can send you. I can send you the link if you're interested in reading it. But personally, Natasha and I would not use anybody but Don. Uh -huh. I actually got to meet Don at AuthorCon. He is such a gem of a human, and he's so incredibly talented. His covers and his work are all original art, and we feel very strongly about it. Actually, Don does. I do, and I know Natasha does. I do understand why other publishers are utilizing AI art in some form. Number one, it's a cost factor. Mm. Number two, you can certainly have a computer-generated image or vision for your cover much faster than you can actually have a custom cover like we have done with Don. It's a time factor. It's an economic factor. Do I think there's a place for it? Personally, I despise it. Do I think it's coming whether we want it or not? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's just whether or not we as creatives can work within it and continue to have the handcrafted element to what we do, which is writing, producing books, having original cover art. I know that for a lot of years, it was mass manufacturing versus handcrafted. I like to think this is the comparison to that, only this to me is much more dangerous because AI pulls what makes it function mm -hmm. from the proprietary work of creatives, be they writers, be they musicians, be they artists. That's where I have a huge conflict with the artificial intelligence brain and the soul and the motivation and inspiration of a human. So we will always use Don Noble. And I'm going to defer to Natasha. And you're probably going to get an earful. Because nobody hates censorship in any form oh. more than she does. <laughs> All right. Let me have it. Well, we're talking about AI art, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, my, 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 my contention is that it's, it's not really artificial intelligence. It's taking sources from humans and yes. rearranging it. It's plagiarism. If, if it, yeah, if it, if it was its own literal consciousness that was creating this stuff, well, that's right. just a different consciousness, but. We would respect it like we do any other yeah. outlier. Yeah. Mm. Did you want to chime in on that, Natasha? Uh, yes, I echo everything that Ruthann said. We are huge fans of 
Don's work and any true artist who invests their time and their creativity into creating something unique. Again, I completely understand why people go for AI because it seems like a fun little program to play with and what's the harm in putting in a couple of words Mm -hmm. and it gives me something that I've never seen before so it must be really unique but again that's just a mask behind that you've got plagiarism and copyright issues because it's taken bits and people from real artists who are putting in the work who are putting in their creativity and they're getting nothing from it. So, yeah, I completely agree that it's just, it's a really scary concept. How difficult it is as well to differentiate between real art and some AI art. Mm. And obviously the same is going to be the case for AI literature, like written work as well, that these types of artificial intelligence are generating. I read an article recently that was about, it was a huge photography competition and there was a photographer that submitted a portrait piece. Um, He won the competition. Um, He got lots of praise for how brilliant this piece was. He won it, he won lots of money and it came out that he did it to test the system, to test how good the judges were at differentiating between real photography and AI. And so he said he did it as a test and they failed. <laughs> he told them quietly, this this isn't my work. This isn't my work. It's computer generated. They still offered him the money. So that, again, that's more red flags on the ethics of the validity of these um, competitions as well. You've got people putting their time and energy and hard work experience there's learning into developing a skill set and then someone can just swoop in there no skill needed just yeah press a couple of buttons on a keyboard and that's you it's scary and like when you think of the level of input you have so if it was advanced enough and i think i think it's been able to do analytical things like I know chat GBT passed the bar exam, but if you were to feed the names, profiles and interactions of your characters into chat GBT and told it to write a Gothic horror story, would you consider that product an original work? No, no, I would agree. Not in any way, shape or form. <laughs> I would agree. No, because as I said, Vince, this was a year and a half of research of, development of discussion, breaking our brains to make sure everything at the end of the story, and it's a complicated story because Mm -hmm. it does cross timelines and not everybody in it is human, but we tied it up with a neat bow at the end. And I don't think there's any way that an intelligence could do that without a great deal of discussion because When you've got original characters like that, you have to think like those characters. And this is what I say when I say AI has no heart, it has no pulse, it has no soul. You have to go with a story like ours and you're you're dealing with emotion. And to me, that's what it's lacking. You know, we can refer back to the one of my favorite movies, iRobot, where one of the characters in the story does become 
what is it, solvent. He does become human. Sentient. Mm. Sentient Sentient is the word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. That's through a process of development and being around humans enough so that the character in that movie can absorb the emotion and actually start to display and understand it. And I'm not saying it won't happen in our lifetime, but at this point, that to me would be no employee. Just feeding words in and having it spew out a story, you're not going to get the depth of the emotion that you get from writing a character that you basically gave birth to. It just is never going to be an equivalent. And there's no way you could put a monetary or emotional connection to that as a reader. To me, it would just be like outer space. It wouldn't be anything I'd ever want to be bothered with. Well, final question. When are the ladies of Delavan House going to meet in person? Next August. Next August. Next I'm, going August. To, I'm going over there. I did try to bribe Natasha to come to Pittsburgh next month for StokerCom, but it just didn't work with her scheduling this year. Um, she's also modest because she's getting an advanced degree in linguistics and English literature, and she's had some heavy work to do on that end, too. But I am going to Scotland next August, and our plan is to attack Worldcon, which is a major, major book convention conference that will be housed and hosted in Glasgow next August. And I'm there. I don't know whether it'll be for two weeks. I don't know whether it'll be for the month. It'll be as long as I can get the hell out of here. Um, She's moving I, in with you, Natasha. Oh, noisy in my house. <laughs> she's got chickens and people, and, and no, but that's the plan. God willing, and the creek don't rise, as they say here in Texas. But it will happen next summer in person. And we're going to be maniacs. I mean, we're going to be unstoppable. We will have all three books in the trilogy out by then. The Mm. Delavan Diaries comes out in November. Our goal is spring of 2004. The tentative title to the conclusion of the trilogy is The Crow and the Serpent. And that is also symbolic because the two locks, the two bodies of water, Delavan House is surrounded by water. Mm. On either side, one is in the shape of a crow and the other is in the shape of a serpent. So we have book two covered from Don Noble and we'll commission him later this fall to do book three. So by our hug that we won't let go of each other on next (laughs) August, all three books in the trilogy will be ready to rock. And then we're going to get into another one. And it's going to be completely different. Mm. <laughs> yes, nice. I'm going to be um, taking you around for some real life research on August yeah. next year when you're here. So yes, we'll be hitting the next book four. <laughs> book four, but not of the Dale Van Dyke series. No, when no. It's over. We're, 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 yeah, we've created this world and we're going to let everything come full circle. And then we're going into some interesting mythos in our second book that really hasn't been touched on in anything either Natasha or I have read personally. And we're going to get dark in another direction. We're going to kind of go away from the witchy aspect of Delavan House. 
we're going to go into a whole other realm over in there. And it kind of got us talking and we're like, well, what about the next trilogy if we go into a criminal element? not a supernatural element so much. So we've got some big plans. After these three books are written, we're going to go right into another one. <laughs> nice. There are notes. There are many notes. <laughs> <laughs> many notes. Oh, God. Endless notes. Endless notes. And then we drive each other crazy because we've both got other work that we need to be doing. And I'll be like, okay, so I've got this character's name, and this is what he is, and oh, yeah, there's going to be a character named this because she could be Pavona's twin sister and different things. And she's like, look, I've got to get this manuscript done. I think it's her final grading. I mean, she's been slaving all month long. She's like, will you stop? (laughs) They don't let us alone. They're like annoying first dates that you know there's going to be a second one. Uh But you you know, there's not going to be a second date. So you swipe swipe left or is it left or right? Uh And you know there's not going to be a second date, but they will not leave you alone. They stalk you. And that's what our characters tend to do with us most (laughs) of the time. And and our ideas. Oh, well, we look forward to that. <laughs> He's tired already. Oh, my God. And I do want to say, Vince, thank you for reading us and loving us. It's so appreciated. Unexpected. And thank you so much for it. We love you. And we're always thrilled to chat. And now you're stuck with us. Because now you're going to have to have us back this fall for book two. Oh, all right. <laughs> Well, ladies, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Vince. It's been a pleasure meeting you. (laughs) It's been a pleasure meeting you as well. It's always a pleasure, always. And you're getting married on November 11th? Uh, 11, 11, 12, yeah. 11, 12. 12. Oh, Natasha, that's right around the time book two comes out. (laughs) (laughs) Launch party at your wedding. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> book signing in the hallway. <laughs> well, as we bring the show to a close, I know you basically went over what was going on as far as your books, but is there anything you missed or anything you'd like to reiterate? Um, other than the fact that you can find everything about us at www.brazenfolkhorror.com, we do weekly updates. We do what we call Seductive Saturday, Mm. and we go into character depth, we go into setting depth, and starting in June with the Summer Solstice, we're actually going to be releasing a quarterly newsletter for our readers, but our newsletter is not going to be like anything you've ever seen. So we've got a lot going on behind the scenes that we still constantly do, you can go to our website. It links you to all of our socials. We're everywhere. Neither of us like social media, but we try to keep up with it and keep a presence going. So that's the best way to find out what's coming and little tidbits and behind the scenes. Go to our website. We're all over the place. Follow us everywhere. And sign up for the newsletter because yes. it's going to be epic. This was another idea. Let's do a newsletter, Natasha. Oh, I'm not so keen on that. (laughs) Well, now we're doing a quarterly magazine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to reach across my desk here to get one. Hang on. So, 
this. We go for a conversation to a 30-page magazine mm-hmm. for our newsletter. So in other words, Natasha, let's do a newsletter. <laughs> let's get everybody to come to the website rather than to go to all the social media. So starting in June, we go into articles that we've written about collaboration. Natasha has an article on editing. We go into a lot more about what we're doing. We're going to do giveaways, what's coming, what influenced the writing of. And you can see there the cover for the Delavan Diaries, which is mm. coming out in November. So, yeah, we don't do things like the others. We always say that our tagline is be brazen, but we also say we're not like the others. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Ruthann, Natasha, thank you again for joining me. Thanks, Vince. Thank you, Vince. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will be interviewing a poet, novelist, and teacher that has written an amazing work of speculative fiction that rides the wave of quantum physics. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Excuse-